Good morning, Sugar Creek family. Hope you are doing well. Hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving break, and I also hope you are getting ready for a great Christmas season. On behalf of our lead pastor, Dr. Hartman, I want to welcome you to this service one more time. I know that some of you are joining us online. Some of you are joining us from uh, Richmond, Rosenberg, some from Missouri City, and some from Sugarland. Wherever you are, I want you to know we are thankful for you, and we thank God every day for the fact that we can serve the Lord with you and do ministry uh, together. My name is Ender Palencia, and I have the joy of serving this great church as the pastor of missions and Today, we're going to conclude, we're going to end our sermon series that we have titled, Worship Is. And uh, so far, we've learned through our pastor that worship is uh, surrendering ourselves before God. We've learned that worship is also preparing our hearts to meet with the Almighty God. And today, we will see that worship is also giving ourselves away to the mission of God. As the pastor of missions here at Sugar Creek, I have the joy, I have the blessing of seeing how amazingly this church gives itself away many, many times, how uh, many people give themselves away through prayer. We have a great prayer ministry that is committed to praying and crying out to God so that God continues to move here in our city and in other parts of the world, and they give hours, give themselves away for hours uh, to prayer. I also see the generosity of our church and how many people give themselves away by giving so that we can continue to do ministry here in the greater Houston area, but also beyond to the ends of the earth. And I also get to see how many people give themselves away by serving with our local mission partners here in the city, but also by going on short-term mission trips to other countries and to other places so that uh, they can proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And I, I have to tell you, the last couple of years I've been amazed at seeing how, how many people give themselves away in this way, and also how God is moving through these people so that the gospel can continue to be proclaimed and so that lives can be transformed and people can experience the hope that only Jesus Christ can bring them. And here's the deal. I believe that God wants to invite you to continue to do that if you're doing that, but also to invite you to join him if you are not doing any of these things. He wants to invite you to be a part of what he is doing to save and to redeem humanity right here where we live, but also in other countries as well. For that to happen, for you to be used by God and for you to experience the, the, the purpose for which God created you, you have to understand that, that worship ends in us giving ourselves away to his mission, to what he wants to do for humanity. Uh, when we read scriptures, when we read the Bible, we see, that we find the stories of many ordinary men and women like you and I who were used by God in extraordinary ways to bring hope to people and to transform the lives of people. These men and women were used by God in incredible, incredible ways. But when you look at their lives, when you see what happened, you understand that something happened in their hearts first that motivated them, that fueled them to give themselves away to God's mission. And it started with them experiencing God in a unique way. And so as a result of them seeing God, their act of worship was giving themselves away. One of those uh, people is a man named Isaiah. Isaiah was a, a prophet that God used to bring hope to the nation of Judah about 600 years before Jesus uh, came to earth. 
And it was a critical time for the nation of Judah. Uh, number one, because when God called him that year, their king had died. And so uh, uh, their king had been an okay king, but uh, he had brought some stability to the nation. And so when the king died, they were a little confused and trying to figure out what they were going to do. But also because uh, a few years from the moment when God called Isaiah to bring hope to the nation, uh, the Babylonians were going to come and they were going to uh, take over their land and they were going to uh, uh, move them as exiles back to Babylon. So it was going to be a very confusing time for this nation. And yet God brought hope to them through this man, through Isaiah. He told them that uh, everything had a purpose and he told them that it was going to happen but so that we, they could go back to God. And, and not only that, but he pointed them to the ultimate hope that God has for us, actually his son, Jesus Christ. It's crazy that in, in the next few weeks, we're going to read some of the most famous passages in scriptures about Christmas, about the birth of Christ, and, and many of those passages are found in Isaiah, and we're written 600 years before Jesus came. And so you see that God uses Isaiah in a great, great way. But before he was used by, by God to bring hope to humanity, like God wants to use us, he had to have an encounter with God that it ended in him giving himself away as an act of worship. And we have that encounter with God narrated to us in Isaiah chapter six. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it right there. We're gonna go through the first eight verses of that chapter. And in the eight verses, you're gonna see that there were four things that happened in, Isaiah, in Isaiah's life that led him to give himself away that, the way he did and therefore to be used by God in an amazing way. And the first thing that happened is that he had a, a realization of who God is. And I think that's the, the starting point for us. Worship starts with a realization of who God is. I want you to see what happened in Isaiah's life in verses 1 through 3, right there in Isaiah 6. It says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Let's pause there for a moment. What we have here in these three verses is most likely a vision that Isaiah had of God, that God revealed himself to Isaiah through a vision. Again, this happened about 600 years before Jesus was even uh, born. And so, but, but God chose to, to reveal himself to Isaiah in this way. And what he saw in this vision changed his life forever. What he saw in this vision led him to say, I want to live a life of worship to you. And part of that worship is me giving my life to you, giving myself away. And when he saw this vision of God, he saw many, many things about God. But there are at least three things that I want to mention to you that, that he saw for sure when he had this vision. The first thing that he saw and that he understood is that God is sovereign. What that means is that God is really in control of the universe, that God really rules the universe, that, that he created the universe by just speaking, and therefore he can hold it in his hand, and he can control what happens. When Isaiah saw God, he understood that he realized that God is truly sovereign. It says that he had this vision of God 
the year in which King Uzziah died. And again, this brought some instability, some lack of stability to the nation of Judah. And uh, in the future uh, years, in the next few years, it was going to be even worse because Babylon was going to come. Another king was going to come and was going to conquer them and was going to take them out as exiles. So it was going to be a really difficult time. One, because, because their king had died. And second, because this other king was going to come. But he says that that year, when he had this vision of God, he saw the Lord, and he saw that the Lord was sitting on a throne. In other words, that he was ruling, that he is king. And, and it's not just any throne. He says that he saw him on a throne that is, uh, it was seated uh, uh, high and lifted up, is what he says. In other words, it, it, there might be other thrones here on this earth. There might be other thrones right here that we can see. But this throne that Isaiah saw was higher than any thrones that we can see on this earth. And what Isaiah was implying with this text, what God wants us to understand in this text that is that there might be kings on this earth, but that there is a king above all kings, and that is our God. That there might be lords above this earth or on this earth, but there is actually a lord above all lords, and that is the almighty God that we worship. Isaiah saw that God is sovereign, that God rules over the earth, that God is truly in control of the universe. It didn't matter that the king had died or that Babylon was going to come later, that God was still in control. And boy, this is so important for us to understand because it is so easy for us to place our hope in our circumstances, to place our hope in, in our paycheck, to place our hope in a political party, to place our hope in a president, to place our hope in a government, when we have to understand that there is a God that rules over, over all those things, that there is a King of kings, that there is a Lord of lords, and that is the almighty God that we worship. He sits on the throne and he rules, and that is actually a really good thing for us. The fact that we are not in control of our future, the fact that we are not in control of what's going on is actually a good thing for us. And we know that because of the next two things that he saw when he saw the throne of God. He not only saw that he is sovereign, he also saw that God is almighty. See, it is one thing for somebody to hold a position of authority or power, but it's a completely different thing for that person to be capable of doing what that position requires. And what Isaiah saw is that God is not just sovereign. In other words, that he doesn't just sit on the throne. Also, that he has the power to sit on the throne that is above all thrones. That he is almighty. That he is powerful. It says in the text that Isaiah saw that the train of his robes filled the temple. That, that, that probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you until you look at it in its context. And you understand what that meant in that culture. See, in, in that time and in that culture, kings not only sat on thrones, but also they, they would walk around. And when they walk around many times, especially in public places, they would wear a robe. And, and that robe was kind of a sign of majesty, a sign of power. And the longer the robe was, the, the more power this king would have. See, a robe was... a. a, a, a you can say an unnecessary piece of clothing. It was just an adornment. And so at the time, nobody would have something like that unless they had a lot of power, unless they had a lot of money. Robes were also made out of very expensive fabrics. And so if a king walked into a place, in a public place, with a robe that was dragging behind him two or three feet, then that meant he was a powerful king. 
And the text tells us that when Isaiah saw this vision of God, he saw God sitting on a throne, ruling over the earth. But not only that, he saw that the train of his robe, the length of his robe, filled the whole temple. It wasn't just dragging two or three feet behind him. It filled the whole place. In other words, that his power, his glory, it goes over all the earth. That's why the seraphim later declared that the whole place, the whole earth is full of his glory. So when Isaiah had this vision of God, he saw not only that God is sovereign, but also that God is absolutely powerful, that he is almighty, that it's a good thing for us, that he is in control of the universe, that he rules the world, and that he is in control of our lives as well. He saw that it was actually a good thing. And like I said, it's so good for us to understand this because this means for us that our hope is not found in, 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 again, in our circumstances or what we can do for ourselves or, 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 or anything else here on this earth, but in the almighty, all-powerful God. Isaiah saw that God is sovereign, that God is holy, and then the third thing that he saw, he understood, it was clear to him, is that God is holy. A word holy sometimes we use it too often here in our language and often we misuse it even and, and, and but we have to understand what it means it means uh, that, that is unique that is set apart it speaks of the morality absolute morality and perfection of god that's that's what isaiah saw that the god is unlike any other being in fact there were other beings there that were declaring with their words and with their actions how holy God is. It says that there were seraphim who, who were there declaring, again, with their words and with their actions how holy God is. Uh, that word seraphim, uh, when you think of it, you probably think of, of, of angels or an angelic being, and you, you're right to think of that. That's what it is. But you probably, uh, what comes to mind is the little figure that we picture with a white robe and, and maybe a little halo on top of his head and playing the harp. And, and these beings are nothing like that. I want you to know that. In fact, the, the, the word seraphim means burning beings. In other words, this, these beings are, are set on fire. That's, that's what it means. And it, it says that they had three sets of wings. It says that they, they were speaking. It says that they had eyes, that they had feet. So they had these burning beings with three sets of wings, with eyes and, and a mouth. that we, we cannot even fully comprehend what those beings look like. And yet these beings that we don't even understand were declaring over and over again, again, with their words and with their actions, how holy God is, how unique, how set apart our God is. He says that with two wings they were covering their faces. In other words, the radiance and the light and the brightness that was coming out from the throne where God was sitting was so strong that this burning being couldn't even, couldn't even look at him. I have this light right in front of me right now that if I look at it for too long, it's going to hurt my eyes. That's kind of what's going on here. These beings are in the throne of God and it's so bright that they can't even see the, 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 the directly. They have to cover their faces. It also said that they were covering their feet with two wings. In that culture, when you cover your feet, it's because you didn't feel worthy of being where you were. And so it was, a, it was a sign of them saying, uh, we're not even worthy of being in the presence of uh, the God that we are in the presence of. 
and then they were flying, out, flying around and they were declaring with their mouth over and over again to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. In the Hebrew language, when you use an adjective twice to describe a person, you were basically saying that that, that, that is the, the most of that adjective person that you've ever experienced. And he says that this Beings that are burning beings with three sets of wings and faces and feet uh, are declaring not once, not twice, but three times that God is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. In other words, there is absolutely no one like our God. There is absolutely no one as perfect and as pure and as moral and as good as the God that we worship. That's why they declare the whole earth, all of it, is full of His glory. And I think it's so important that we understand this. Because sometimes we just get used to the routine and going to church on Sunday with a little coffee, sticking our hands in our pockets, and we're singing these songs about the Almighty God, and we forget who we are singing to. We forget that He is Almighty, that He is sovereign, that He's absolutely holy, and He deserves our worship. As I, as I uh, do what God called me to do in this church, I have the opportunity to visit different countries. And, and part of what we've done is try to educate our people in learning, understanding what other people believe, what they worship, and what they do. And so sometimes we would visit a, a, a temple at another country. And many times when we go to these temples, we, we see people uh, uh, saying a little prayer to a little idol to a little image somewhere or, or casting a coin or saying something and then moving on. In different countries, we've seen this. And when you look at these images, you see that they have, they have eyes. They're made out of wood or, or, or clay or something, and they have eyes and they have ears. But the truth of the matter is that they cannot see, they cannot hear. But when you and I worship, when you and I sing to God, when you and I pray to God, we're singing and we're praying and we're crying to a God that can see, that can hear, and that can move in power because he sits on the throne and he is almighty and he rules the world and moves in his power. We're worshiping to a one true living God. And true worship has to start there. True worship begins with an encounter with God that helps us understand that he is the one true God and therefore the only one, the only one that deserves true worship. That's what happened in Isaiah's heart. He had that encounter with God and that changed his life forever. And that led him to a second thing that happened in his heart that has to happen in ours. He also had a realization of who he was. And I think worship is fueled by our realization of who we are. I want you to see what, I, what happened in Isaiah's life after he saw the holiness of God. Verses 4 and 5, it says this. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. After I say, I saw the throne of God. He saw how holy, how mighty, how sovereign he is. Then he looked inward. And the truth is that he didn't like what he saw. He saw, first, he saw perfection. He saw holiness. And then he looked inward, and he saw imperfection. He saw that he was broken. It says that 
the first thing that he could say was, woe is me. In other, in other words, poor me. He said, for I am lost. That phrase can also be translated as, I fall short, or I don't measure up, or I'm not good enough. That, that's what he said when he said, for I am lost. He saw the holiness of God, the might of God, the sovereignty of God, and then he looked at himself and he said, oh my, I'm not even worthy of being here. I fall short. I am lost. And he said this, he says, I am a man of unclean lips. Again, this probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but you have to understand what this meant in that culture so that you understand what's going on here. In, in the Hebrew culture, there was a connection between the, the mouth or the lips and the heart. Uh, let me just kind of give you an example of what I mean. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus himself said this, that out of the abundance of the heart speaks the mouth. Jesus said these words. And then later in Matthew chapter 15, verses 17 through 19, he kind of elaborated on that and explained that better. And in talking about what contaminates a person, whether they, what they eat or not, he says what contaminates a person is not necessarily what goes in the mouth, but rather what goes out of the mouth. And then he explained why. He says, because what goes out of the mouth is what's in the heart of the person. And so you see, there was this connection between the mouth, between the lips and the heart. And what I mean by that is that when Isaiah declared, I am a man of unclean lips, what he was declaring is, I am a man of an unclean heart. Impure lips equals impure heart. That's what he is declaring. He's recognizing that he is broken. He's recognizing that God is holy and that he is not. That God is perfect and that he was not. He's recognizing that he was not even worthy or able to be in the presence of God in his own efforts. And I want you to see something important. He didn't just see that he was broken. He saw that everyone, every one of us, are born that way. He said, I live among or amidst a people of unclean lips. In other words, I'm not the only one with an impure heart. All of us are born with an impure heart. That's what Paul confirmed later in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, when he said, for all have sinned. And because of that, fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah was seeing something that we find in Scripture from beginning to end, that God is holy, God is perfect, and that we are not. And because we are not, and He is, then on, in our own strength, we cannot be with God. We're not able. We fall short of the glory of God because we are all born sinners. That's what the Bible teaches Isaiah saw that. Isaiah had an understanding of who he was, of his own brokenness. And that fueled his worship. It was actually a good thing for him. Because it led him to understand his need for God. It led him to understand that he was not good enough in his own effort. That he depended fully and totally on God. And the same is true for us. True worship requires us to understand our brokenness and our inability to save ourselves. When we understand how holy God is, when we understand how mighty, how powerful, how sovereign He is, and the fact that we are not, the simple fact that we don't measure up, then that draws to Him. And that makes us humble to understand that we desperately need Him. And this is what happened in Isaiah's life. So I think worship is a result of our understanding of what the gospel is 
and then us surrendering ourselves to God. Look at what happened to Isaiah in verses 6 and 7. It says this. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I want you to picture this for a moment. See what's going on here. It says that in this vision, what Isaiah saw, he saw the holiness of God, the perfection of God, the power of God, then he saw his own brokenness. And he's seeing these beings flying around that, that has different sets of wings, and one of these wings took a piece of burning coal from the altar with tongues, from the altar where God was sitting. It came from God, and then with that burning coal, he touched his lips. Burning something in that time, in that culture, was a sign of purification. If you wanted to purify gold or any kind of metal, you would burn it because that burning it would take the impurities out. Also, through uh, the entire Old Testament, we see how God required his people to burn offerings as a sign of purification also. And so uh, burning something was a sign of purification. I already told you that there was a connection between the mouth, between the lips and the heart. And therefore, when this seraphim touched the lips of Isaiah, which he had already declared were unclean or impure, with that burning coal, what that moment is signifying is that his heart was being purified, that God was doing for him what he could not do for himself. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Of the fact that God came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves? That's the message that we find in this Bible from beginning to end. That Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That God is absolutely holy. That we are not. And because of that, we cannot be where he is. But God in his mercy, not because we're good, not because we're religious, not because we go to church, because God is good and he's gracious, then he made a way for us. And he sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life because we couldn't live a perfect life. And then to die a horrible death that you and I should have died. He didn't just die for us, he died instead of us. He took our place on that cross so that our hearts could be purified and so that we could be in the presence of God and enjoy this mighty, powerful God and his blessings. That's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what makes our faith different from any religion in the world. Every other religion will tell you that you have to be good so that God accepts you. But the gospel says that we cannot be good enough, but God is good enough in our place. He sent Jesus to do for us what we couldn't do for us for ourselves. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Apostle Paul summarizes this in such a beautiful way. He says this, For our sake, he, the Father, made him, the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the greatest exchange in the history of humanity. In a couple of weeks, you're going to start going to Christmas parties, and you're going to do gift exchange. And it happens every year, but I have to prepare yourself for this, okay? Brace yourself. You will be disappointed. 
You will work really hard to find somebody a gift, and then when you get a gift from that person, you're gonna be like, oh, really, this is what I got? It happens every time, okay? So praise yourself. But I want you to see that this gift right here is a gift. This exchange right here is an exchange that never disappoints. It's the greatest exchange in the history of humanity. It's because listen to what he's saying here. It says that Jesus knew no sin, he lived a perfect life. And because he lived a perfect life, then he deserved a reward. That's what he's saying. We didn't. We were imperfect. And because we were imperfect, we deserve some sort of punishment. But God, in his grace, in his mercy, took the punishment that we deserve, and he put it on the Son, on Jesus Christ, so that we didn't have to take it. And then he took the reward that he deserved. For living a perfect life and if we place our faith in him then we get that reward we get that inheritance we get to be coerced with Jesus Christ and be called children of God and enter and worship the presence of this almighty God that we already talk about it is a beautiful gift that we don't deserve and so worship happens when you understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us because you can help but to say thank you, God, for the grace of this Jesus who gave his life for me. Isaiah saw God doing for him what he couldn't do for himself. And that's what we see in the gospel. And what you see is the next thing that happened in Isaiah's life is that he understood that he had a mission to live for. And so he gave himself away to that mission. And I think worship is understanding what our mission is, and therefore giving ourselves away to that mission. Look at what it says in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. says this, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. You know, a lot of people know that verse, and they've heard this expression, Here I am, send me. But isn't it all more powerful when you look at it in its context? When you understand everything that happened in Isaiah's life prior to that moment, what led him to say, here I am, send me. He saw the holiness of God. He saw how mighty, how powerful, how incredibly awesome God is. And then he saw that he was not, that he was broken, that he was sinful, that he needed help. And then he saw that God did for him what he could not do for himself, that God purified his heart so that he could be in his presence even though he didn't deserve it. And then as an act of worship, he bowed before him and said, here I am, Lord, Send me. A phrase, here I am, is the word hain in the Hebrew, which uh, describes complete availability. In other words, I'm available for whatever it is that you want from me. And the word send me, it's one word in Hebrew, it's the word shalach. And the word shalach means I release control, use me as you please. In other words, when I say I experienced the goodness of God and the glory of God and he worshiped God the way he did, all he could say was, here I am, Lord. My life is your. I'm available to you. Wherever you want to send me, send me. I want to tell other people how incredibly awesome you are. I want you to notice he didn't ask when, he didn't ask where, he didn't ask how much it would cost him, he didn't ask how, how, how difficult it would be. God simply said, who's going to go? Who's going to tell people about me? Who's going to bring hope to people? Who's going to say? And he immediately said, here I am. Send me. 
See, the, the way to respond to the gospel, to the beauty of God, is complete surrender. As Pastor Mark said in the first sermon, it's just complete and total surrender. And you and I have received an invitation from Jesus to follow him, even though we, we don't deserve it. He invited us to be a part of his kingdom but I want you to understand and to know that the invitation to follow Jesus is also an invitation to live for Jesus. To put him and his kingdom as a priority and to understand that what you have experienced is something that other people need to experience. I'm going to say something you probably don't, are not going to hear from many missions pastors. But I believe it to be true. I read this in a book a long time ago. Now, it says something like this. It says that the ultimate goal in this church is not missions. He says that missions exist because worship doesn't exist. And what that means is that the whole reason why we go and we tell people about Jesus is because there are people who have not experienced the glory of God like we have or uh, they don't understand that they're broken like we are and they don't understand what Jesus has done for them. They have not truly worshipped the one true God and therefore we have to go in mission. We have to tell them about Jesus so that they can experience God, so they can worship God like you and I have the privilege of doing. A couple of weeks ago, we had our missions event, missions experience here at church, and it was a great party. We had missionaries from all over the world. We, we, we had people who serve here locally, and uh, we, we had a time of worship also and celebration, and I told those who came that over the last couple of years, I've had the privilege of walking around some of the darkest places here in our city. Places like Bissonette Street where, unfortunately, women are trafficked every day and where men are trapped in addictions. They don't even know how to break. It's just heartbreaking to see what's going on there. I've had conversations with, with people who have been relocated to our city as refugees. And, and even though they have escaped a really difficult situation in their country, and, and because they, they helped our country, now they have been relocated to, to our country. But even though they're in a much better place now, they, they're confused. They don't, they don't know how to get started. They, they don't know what's next. They're, they're hopeless. I've seen so many people from different backgrounds coming and going busy trying to look for hope. I've been to places like Shibuya in, in Tokyo, in Japan, where literally thousands and thousands of people cross an intersection every three minutes. People going in all sorts of different directions. I've been to Indonesia where sometimes you have to walk like this because there are bikes and cars and, and scooters everywhere just moving around you. And, and you don't even know how to walk. People going and moving in different directions, desperate for hope. I walked through the poorest slums in South Asia where we were told, don't, don't look at the ladies sitting in their front porches because they're looking for somebody to do business with them so that they can have something to eat that day. Heartbreaking. What's crazy is that that same day, I started my journey back home from South Asia, and I had to spend the night uh, to catch up flight in the morning. I had to spend the night in one of the most affluent cities in the world. 
city in the Middle East called Dubai, where I saw the tallest buildings I've ever seen, the nicest cars I've ever seen. I saw people with a lot of money, and yet you look at their eyes and you see the exact same hopelessness that I saw that morning in those slums. I've been in the border between Venezuela and Colombia where people are just trying to flee a really difficult situation and they think that if they could just cross over then all their problems would be solved and, and they, yeah, I can tell that they're just hopeless and they don't know where true hope is found. I've been in different places with many of you and everywhere I've gone I've seen people, people, human beings created in the image of God of different colors of skins who speak different languages with different levels of education but all of them with a void in our hearts and they're looking for something they're looking to have an encounter with the one true God so their hearts could be filled and the only way that they can have that encounter is if we give ourselves away as an act of worship because we have experienced that one true God True worship is giving ourselves away so others can experience what we have experienced in Jesus. And as I said at the beginning, I believe God is inviting you to be a part of what He is doing right here in our city. I believe He's given you gifts, talents, abilities, resources so that you can be a part of what He is doing in our city and around the world. And I know that when I say numbers and when I say all these countries and, and when I say all of these, it, it might sound overwhelming to you. I understand that. We, we need to raise a million dollars so that we can continue to support missionaries locally and internationally and send the mission teams. And that sounds overwhelming. But here's what I learned. I've learned that no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. And so my question to you is, what is it that God is asking you to do as an act of worship in giving yourself away? For some of you, it starts with you actually giving your life to Him. Maybe today you understood for the very first time that in your own efforts you cannot be in the presence of God, but that God is so good that He made a way for you in Jesus. And today, maybe your act of worship is surrendering your life to Jesus and saying, my life is yours, please save me like you save Isaiah. If that's you, we would love to talk to you. We have pastors and leaders at all of our campuses in our Next Step Center. But for some of you, it might be you've already done that and God is inviting you to pray so that more people can go or God might be inviting you to give so that we can continue to take this gospel to the ends of the earth or God might be inviting you to go and serve here in our city or in another country for a week or even for a longer period of time I don't know what God is doing in your heart only God knows but what I do know is that he's inviting us to worship him by giving ourselves away let me pray for us that you're a gracious God and we love you. We have experienced your grace and your goodness. And God, we don't want to be selfish. We want others to experience that. So would you please use us for your glory? God, we want to be like I say and say, here I am, send me. In Jesus' name.